Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and moved closer toward the gospel by this week's message. We're in the season of Epiphany, which is a season where we focus on the appearance of Jesus Christ as the light of the world. We're looking at his first sign, the miracle at Cana, the turning of water into wine. Let's pray together. Father, I pray you would open our hearts, that you would orient each of us to the truth of your word, through your words. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to jump right in. If you have a phone to follow along, do it. If there's a pew Bible there, you brought your own, do it. I like it when people follow along. I like to get into the nuances of the text, so I encourage you to do that. <clears throat> we're going to jump in at the end in verse 11. We read that in John chapter 2, verse 11, we are reading about the first of Jesus' signs. Sign is John's word for miracle. Not just a miraculous act, but an act that signifies something. Each of the seven signs that Jesus does in John 1 through 12 is a sign pointing us to the long-awaited Messiah of Israel who's arrived in Jesus. So think about this, the power of first impressions. After hundreds of years of waiting, God's great Messiah has arrived and is ready to reveal himself to the world. And given the defining, trajectory-setting power of first impressions, we may expect a raising from the dead, or the stilling of the storm, or the storming of the Roman halls of power with the Messiah's might, but that's not what we get. Instead, Jesus' first great sign is to keep a wedding in an insignificant village from running out of wine. It's to extend the life of a party. And yet, in this sign, we have one of the great summaries of the gospel. In this sign, we see four things. We see who Jesus is. We see what Jesus offers. We see how Jesus gives what he offers. And how we receive what Jesus offers. So first, who is Jesus? Now, the problem at face value is simple. Jesus, his mother, and a few new disciples are at a wedding, and it's run out of wine. Jesus solves the problem with a miracle. He turns water into wine. And jumping ahead to the very end of the story, in verse 9, we read that the master of the feast was the first to experience the miracle of the water becoming wine. Now, we have to understand the background a little bit. Who was the master of the feast? The master of the feast was a position of honor, often held by an elected friend or um, an associate. We might think of the modern-day semi-equivalent of the wedding coordinator. If any of you had a wedding coordinator at your wedding. One of the primary duties of the master of the feast was to regulate the distribution of wine and to prevent excess that would ruin the party. Because for as much as the Jews delighted in the fruit of the vine, they did not think highly of drunkenness. Celebration and revelry, yes, absolutely, but grotesque drunkenness, loss of control, no. So since the method for making wine in these days resulted in a very strong wine, alcohol content, the master of the banquet, banquet was responsible for controlling the level of dilution of the wine and then controlling the distribution to make sure they didn't run out. So it may be that he didn't dilute the wine enough. It may be that he didn't control distribution enough. It may be that this whole debacle was his fault. And so when Jesus provides wine, the wine that the feast requires... He does what the master of the banquet himself should have done. He shows himself, point one, to be the master of the feast, the true master of the feast. 
Now, in Jewish tradition, when new wine is opened, a blessing is recited. We have the exact blessing that would have been use, in use in Jesus' day recorded in the book of blessings. We know these words. At the wedding in Cana, when the master of the feast received the new wine from Jesus that Jesus had made, although he didn't know Jesus had made it, it is likely that the master of the feast pronounced this exact blessing in a loud voice. Blessed are you, Lord God of the universe. You create the fruit of the vine. So consider this from the disciples' point of view now. They have just seen Jesus create new wine and are now hearing the master of the feast, unbeknownst to him, in a loud voice blessing God as the creator of the fruit of the vine, of wine. So when we read in verse 11 that the effect of this miracle is that Jesus' glory is revealed and that the disciples believed in him, this is why. This was not a cute party trick, a cute magic trick, but a very Jewish way for Jesus to reveal who he really was. Lord God, King of the universe, the maker of the fruit of the vine. So ultimately, this is the most important thing the sign points to. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God himself. But this doesn't just reveal who Jesus is. It reveals something about what he is like. His big reveal, his big first impression, his big arriving on the scene, his first sign is to extend the life of a party. Now, my own wedding was dry in honor of my beloved Baptist in-laws and um, in honor of close several friends and members who had been alcoholics and preferred it that way. No problem. That's, that's fine. We still had a blast. There are good reasons to forgo alcohol. That's one of them. But there's no good reason to forgo a party for a Christian. For the first sign of Jesus, the God-man, was to reveal himself as master of the feast. Some of us may have grown up in environments where it felt like to be a Christian was to live under the cold, watchful eye of a cosmic killjoy. Now, if that Christianity were a meal, it would be one cold fish stick and a pinch of carrot juice. But Jesus is master of the feast. When the wine runs out, he provides 180 gallons of fine wine. The Christian meal is not a fish stick, but it is a feast of fine meat and well-aged wine. Christians reflect Jesus when a sense of celebration and festive joy and gratitude overflows in their life like fine wine from the glass. Now, this doesn't come easy for me as an Enneagram 4. I tend to be kind of melancholy and see the negative a lot. That's why I married a seven. God bless you, sevens. Thank you. The life of the party. Raise your hand if you're a seven. I know Pablo is, for sure. Jenny. Um, so first, Jesus is the real master of the feast. That's the first and most important lesson. So let's keep swirling the glass and see what other flavors catch the nose. Second, let's look at what Jesus offers. Now again, at face value, the problem is simple. No wine. But there are several layers of complexity to this problem we need a discerning palate to appreciate. First, we must understand the cultural background. In this day, a wedding was absolutely the high point of communal life. Ideally, it lasted seven days. The wedding's importance superseded all else. There's an old Jewish teaching that says if a group of mourners encounters a wedding party, the mourners who are mourning the dead must stop their mourning, dry their tears, and join the wedding celebration. Only after the wedding... Even if it's seven days, can they go back to mourn the dead? It is 
the heart of a community life, the wedding. And at the heart of that celebration was wine, fine wine, because when Israel thought about heaven and when they thought about joy, they thought about a feast. No more grand of a feast, no more grand of a banquet than a wedding banquet. Their hope for God's redemption was bound up in promises made like Isaiah made in Isaiah chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. So don't think about, you know, pie in the sky, harps in the clouds when you think of heaven. Think about the best feast you have ever been to in your life. Wine, then, was a symbol of joy and hope and ultimately of God's salvation. So to run out of wine at a wedding was the ultimate festal failure. It was the ultimate social disgrace. It was the subject of village gossip and family shame for decades. So this background gives way to the theological layer. Now, just as Jesus is the real master of the feast, the wine is a symbol for joy and salvation, the means by which Jesus performs this sign is packed with theological significance. We read in verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. That's where we get 180 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. So first, notice the vessels. What were they? They were for the Jewish rites of purification. Made of stone, caused the water to become impure as clay would. These vessels were meant to be filled with purifying water, and yet there they were, empty. So now we have a twofold problem. No wine. The people have run out of joy. And now we have the symbolic problem of the empty vessels. The people's religion has dried up. We are to see these vessels, in the words of Bishop Robert Barron, as eloquently empty in the sense that they represent both the desire for and the potential for a full and pure and overflowing life with God, but one that is now emptied of its potential and longing to be filled up, having a form of religion but lacking its power. I know some of us grew up in these environments where church was just going through the motions and it was cold and it was empty. And here's where I think many of us, many of our friends, many of our neighbors or coworkers might find ourselves resonating. Have we not felt at times that joy was gone? And that the things we had hoped would fill us up, religiously, emotionally, relationally, physically, whatever, ultimately came up empty. And I don't want to just talk about Israel, but how about in these days, how many stories are we hearing about young evangelicals who thought being young, restless, and reformed and having a big, cool church and a powerful preacher would satisfy only to find the vessel was painfully empty of the Spirit. One of the examples I've used before, one of my favorite, most memorable examples of of the empty vessel um, that's always stuck with me was Jim Carrey's satirical Golden Globe speech. Uh, He had been one of my favorites. My friends and I used to watch Ace Ventura on repeat. After he was introduced to the Golden Globes as two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey, here's what he said in his speech. He said, I am two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. Going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir, I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true. And I could stop this terrible search for what I know ultimately will not fulfill me. 
And all the rich and famous people laughed and shifted uncomfortably in their seats, hoping the expensive makeup and the beautiful clothes would successfully mask the sting of truth. What is going to stop this gnawing hunger in me? It seems like I don't quite have enough to be filled up. I need more of this or more of that. You know, maybe the problem is my circumstances. I need a new city. I need a new job. I need a job. I need a new relationship. I need a relationship. I need to be single. I need to be married. I need kids. I need to be married to someone else. I need more money. I need less difficulty. We could go on and on and on and on. Maybe the problem is myself. I need a new body. I need a new mindset. I need a new hobby. Maybe the problem is God. I need to reject the cold fish stick religion of rules, and I need to express, I need to uh, embrace expressive individualism and be a God unto myself. Nobody can tell me what to do. Maybe. But any of you who've tried any or all of that, and most of us have, find that at the end of the day, we're still hungry. We're still thirsty. And there's this sense that we'll never have enough to be fully satisfied. Maybe it's because there's nothing in this world that will ultimately fulfill you. What if our deepest desires actually point beyond this world? C.S. Lewis famously put it in Mere Christianity. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. I find, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. The richest beauties and pleasures of this world, says Lewis, are the sense of a flower we have not yet found, the echoes of a tune we have not yet heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. When Jesus fills the empty vessels of wine, he is enacting this truth. We will be hungry until we feast on him. We will be thirsty until we drink his wine. We will be empty until he fills us up. All hunger and all thirst and all longing is ultimately pointing to him. The Bible says that eternal life in the, nude cre- in the renewed creation will be a wedding feast. It's Revelation 19. That is where all your hunger points. That is where all your thirst leads. So if you find in yourself this sense of like, I'm never fulfilled, I'm never satisfied, I keep trying and trying and trying, and changing my circumstances isn't doing it, changing myself isn't doing it, rejecting God hasn't done it, would you consider picking up a Bible and reading the Gospel of John and asking Jesus to give you true food and true drink? Let's look finally and more briefly at how Jesus offers us this true food and drink and what we do to receive it. You probably couldn't help but notice that when Jesus' mother points out the problem, no wine, Jesus responds in verse 4 in a famously strange way. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What sounds a little rude to modern readers, woman, was not in fact rude, though it was an expression of polite distance. Why? Because apparently Jesus' heart and his mind were somewhere else. Some are far away, some are distant. Where? Well, he tells us where in his very next line to his mother. He says, my hour has not yet come. In John's gospel, Jesus' hour 
always means his crucifixion and his death. As in John 17, 1, when Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven at the Passover meal the night before he's arrested and then ultimately led to crucifixion, he prays, Father, the hour has now come. This problem that seems to us like a minor oversight, no wine, is Jesus now distractedly, somberly thinking about the hour of his death. Why? Jesus knows what providing true wine for the true feast will cost. He knows what it will cost him to give us the drink of new and unending life. He knew, for example, that the ancient prophecy of Genesis 49 was about him, where it was written that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. In other words, the king will come from Judah. The Messiah will come from Judah, as Jesus did. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his colt to the choice vine. Wine. He washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. The blood of grapes. He knew this more costly blood that he would give. He knew that his own body would be like the grape that was crushed and squeezed, discarded, in order to make the wine that gladdened the party. And so he says several chapters later, in John 6, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You can feast on all you want to feast on. You will be hungry until you feast on me. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood's blood abides in me, and I in him. See, the real tragedy of the wedding and of of life is that the vessels are empty because of separation from the source of life, from the maker of the vine. And we are cut off from him, we dry up, we hunger, we thirst, we're emptied. But having come into our world, into our very lives, which are in some ways like a a dying, disastrous party that's run out of wine, he's offering to fill us up with his very own lifeblood, the ultimate wine of joy and salvation. So finally, how do we receive it? Very simply, we echo the words of Mary when she summed up the entire Christian life in five words. Do what he tells you. Though she was likely puzzled by his strange response, Mary knew her son well enough to know this. Come what may, trust him. Whenever, whatever, whatever. Whether he acts, whether he doesn't, whether he delays, whether he commands, trust him. Stick with him. He's the only solution to this problem. I'm telling you, he's the only hope. Do whatever he tells you. So we receive the new wine of Christ's own life, in other words, by trusting him. By trusting him at his words. Whether we have to patiently wait for him or he's doing something now, just trust him. Stick with him. Trusting that he is the answer for our need. He is the source of our life. He is the master of the feast. And you're not going to be fulfilled and satisfied anywhere else. So as we treasure these truths and move toward communion together, where we are offered this wine, a few possible points of more practical application. I wonder for some of you if it's time for some of you to just let go of some of the other foods and other wines that you are trying to turn to and feast upon that are leaving you hungry. 
maybe this is actually a moment where you're going to turn and you're going to let go and you are going to embrace Jesus, maybe for the first time, and say, Jesus, help me to trust you. Help me to feast on you and to be satisfied in you alone. Maybe you just need to acknowledge there are some places you're going in life where you're trying to be filled up. It's just not working. It's just time to let it go. It's just time to let it go. Maybe there's some painful sorrow, some disappointment that felt like running out of wine at a wedding, and it's time for you to see how the Lord has actually used that sorrow and that pain to reveal himself and ultimately to bring you joy. And so you need to start letting him transform some hardship into something he's using, and you can become a wounded healer too. Maybe the invitation for you is simply to gratitude. Do you know that the man who was the master of the feast had no idea it was actually Jesus who did this amazing thing that saved his honor and the wedding's joy? He thought it was the the bridegroom, right? Jesus had done a miracle. He had no idea. Perhaps it is time for you to finally acknowledge that it's Jesus who has provided abundantly for you. It's not, you know, the birds of the air, the breath in your lungs, the sun, the mountains, the graces and the blessings of your life. Where do they, they're from Jesus. Where would you be without his abundant provision? So maybe it's time to just allow yourself to be grateful in Jesus' direction. I'd like to put a bow on the sermon using the wonderful story by Isaac Dennison, Babette's Feast. Has anyone seen the movie, Babette's Feast? Nice and high, I'm curious. So it's very slow, as anyone who's seen it knows, but it is powerful. I would encourage you to check it out. It's about a strict, dour, fundamentalist community in Denmark. Babette, having been exiled there, works as a cook for two elderly sisters who have no idea that Babette was once a chef to nobility in France. So Babette's a famous chef. She's been exiled to this dour, fundamentalist community now where she has to, she has to work for these two dour sisters to make a living. And she longs to return home to her native France and to become a chef again. So she's buying lottery tickets, unbeknownst to her employers, so that she can have enough money to return Meanwhile, every night, her austere employers demand that she cook them the same dreary meal, boiled fish and potatoes, because, they say, Jesus commanded, take no thought of food and drink, cold fish stick religion. One day, the unbelievable happens, that actually wins the lottery. The prize is 10,000 francs, a small fortune, and because the anniversary of the founding of this community is approaching, Babette asks if she might prepare a beautiful French dinner with all the trimmings for the entire village. And at first, the townspeople refuse. They say, no, it would be a sin to indulge in such rich food. But Babette begs them, and finally they relent, and they say, as a favor to you, Babette, we will allow you to serve us this French dinner. But the people secretly vow not to enjoy the feast and instead to occupy their minds with spiritual things. Believing God will not blame them or hold it against them for eating this sinful meal as long as they do not enjoy it. Cold fish dick religion. Babette begins her preparations and like caravans of food start arriving and fine wine by the barrel begins coming along with cages of quail and, and barrels and barrels of food. And finally, the big day comes, and the village gathers, and the first course is an exquisite turtle soup. And the diners force it down without enjoyment. They're committed to not enjoying this meal. But although they usually eat in silence, conversation begins to take place. 
And then comes the wine, the finest vintage in all of France. And the atmosphere begins changing. And someone smiles, and someone else giggles, and an arm comes up and drapes over a shoulder, and someone is heard saying, After all, did the Lord Jesus not say to love one another? And by the time the main entree of quail arrives, these austere, pleasure-fearing people are giggling and laughing and slurping and defying and forgiving one another and praising God for their many years together. This pack of Pharisees is transformed into a loving community through the gift of a meal. One of the two sisters goes into the kitchen to thank Babette. And she says to her, oh, Babette, how we will miss you when you return to Paris. She's rich now, right? She won the lottery. She doesn't need to work anymore. Babette replies, I will not be returning to Paris because I have no money. I spent it all on the feast. It gets me every time. (laughs) Why trust Jesus? He has spent it all on the feast. So come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy milk and wine, without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me. And eat what is good, and delight your soul in the richest of fare. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit AdventDenver.com.